Hello. Welcome to the first episode of The Laughing Satirist. But why is the satirist laughing? He laughs because contemporary satire has fallen from Jonathan Swift's high comic tweaking of humanity to becoming a synonym for sarcasm, polemic, and invective. Here we are talking about satire, not op-ed pieces. A real satire has us laughing at the absurdity of what it exposes, not out of derision, but out of recognition and recognition of something painfully familiar, maybe even something within ourselves. If we can't laugh with a satire and we can't see ourselves as the subjects of our own laughter, then we are either not reading satire or we shouldn't be trying to read it. Today's satire is The Butterfly Collector. On the surface, it's the familiar story of a miraculous healing followed by a terrifying relapse when a a butterfly follows an elderly man out of a butterfly exhibit and shares its dreams with him. Beneath the surface, it's a gentle satiric expose of our desire to avoid other people's visions by labeling them with a diagnosis. I will not comment on the author's descriptions of a long-term marriage. The Butterfly Collector The link between butterflies and dreams is poorly understood. I had accompanied my wife Lillian and her mother to the butterfly exhibit at the conservatory more out of a sense of duty than any interest in butterflies or in them. After 37 years of marriage, we spent Sunday afternoons seeking some diversion that Lillian's and mother's feet and nerves and bladders could endure. While they were distracted by the orchids, I slipped away on a concrete path through the imitation rainforest, steamy with drizzle from overhead pipes. We had been there so often that I recognized the overfed goldfish in the jungle pool and many of the family groups pretending to share grandma's delight in exotic flowers. Just another three hours and Lillian will think of dinner. I can open a bottle of wine and the evening will merge with all the others in the soft gauze of forgetfulness and boredom. I don't remember entering the exhibit itself. High school girls in khaki shorts and bright green polo shirts were passing out a brochure called How to Identify Butterflies, and children were staring at the trees. It was strangely quiet. According to the brochure, ants tended one family, the Lysanids, until they emerged from their cocoons a beautiful silvery blue. Perhaps that's why they wobbled so unsteadily when they finally escaped. The sun came upon them too quickly. Then a boy started to run, and a girl shouted, You're not allowed to catch them. I saw something flutter, and my chest froze. Brighter than strobe lights, more brilliant than fireworks, the butterflies flickered among the palms. Slivers of orange and silver and blue opened and closed like slits into eternity. I felt my way to a bench and sat down. Inside the silent bursts, saints and angels appeared and beckoned, only to vanish when I focused on them. Around me, children held out their hands, and mothers said, be careful. 
like aerial sprites, butterflies reeled through the foliage and hovered just above the grasping fingers. A silver butterfly wavered over me, opening the firmament to the reign of Elizabeth I. The old lady trotted through the crowd on an enormous white horse. I reached out to touch her skirt. Where have you been, Lillian demanded. Mother's absolutely exhausted. I had to take her to the car. Always before, this was Lillian's welcome signal to disengage. But who can move so abruptly from cheering the Queen's Lancers to the long drive home with Mother? Can't we stay another few minutes, I begged. No. Like a mother with a recalcitrant five-year-old, she took my arm and led me to the gate. An old man in a pith helmet sat beside the screen door. Just one at a time, he cautioned. We don't want any of our guests to escape. Mother is waiting, Lillian snapped, pushing me through the door into a screened enclosure. In the corner of my eye, I saw something silver. Be careful, the guardian cried. He's getting away. Lillian kept going through the next door, and that gave me my chance. Like a naughty child, I reached out and cupped the butterfly in my hand. Looking back, I saw the old man wag his finger at me. When we reached the car, Mother was sitting in the front seat, fanning herself with the service leaflet from church. Where were you? She greeted me. Banbury Cross, I replied. Don't be ridiculous, she snapped. The butterfly tickled my hand. Lillian had to buckle my seatbelt because I was holding the butterfly in one hand and the brochure from the exhibit in the other. In the evening, after she had driven Mother back to the retirement center, I would hear more about this exchange. As we crept along the parkway, Lillian and Mother discussed the low quality of the cleaning service at the center. Cupping my hand like a telescope, I peered out the window to see what the butterfly was doing. Nothing. What had happened? Breathless, I started to open my fingers and saw a blackness deeper than the blackness beyond the last galaxies. Then a tiny light appeared, rising from the depths of space and splitting and swirling until the Milky Way turned slowly in my hand. Who had ever seen this but God? If I open my hand, our universe would dissolve. If I close my fist, all creation would be crushed. It trembled in my hand, wanting so much to stay alive. I was weeping when Lillian opened the door to unfasten my safety belt and say that we were home. I slipped into my study while Lillian and Mother fussed over who would use the bathroom first. Carefully opening my fingers, I watched the butterfly stretch its wings like a child yawning and rise effortlessly to the top of the bookshelf. Then I went to the kitchen to pour sherry. I don't like sherry, but Lillian won't allow us anything stronger. Sometimes on Sundays, she and Mother spread cheese on Ritz crackers as an hors d'oeuvre. They do not expect me to join them in the conversation. Dinner began uneventfully. Lillian had boiled something that my regular Chardonnay could not quite overcome. She and Mother were exchanging ideas about basting when I saw it wavering over the high boy. The butterfly had slipped in from the den and was sitting at the edge of the scroll where only I could see it. I raised my glass to it 
as I once had to Lillian at the cotillion that last summer before our engagement. Did you say something, dear? She asked. No. The air was soft, the orchestra restrained, and the only name on my dance card was hers. Her hair smelled clean, and her eyes were soft and blue. How could I know that the decades would strain the life out of them, and her hands would turn hard and cold? But now we were young, and the windows were open to the soft night, and none of this could ever happen to us. It's the wine, Mother said. With all his medicines, you shouldn't let him drink like that. I don't take that many medicines. Like everyone else, I'm on Lipitor and something for my blood pressure and allergies, and the doctor recently added Aricept as a stimulant. I was going to ask about dessert, but the butterfly had separated from the high boy and was struggling through the air conditioning to the living room. If I did anything to divert their attention from me, they might see it, and out would come the fly swatters on the raid. He hasn't even asked about dessert, Lillian said. I went to bed as soon as she left to drive Mother back to Bright Acres. When you have seen the queen, the creation of the universe, and revisited your youth in an afternoon, you have a lot to think about before going to sleep. I was just closing my eyes when I realized the butterfly had followed me to the bedroom and alighted on the ceiling light fixture. Then Santa Sophia was lit again with a thousand candles, and I was staring into the enormous eyes of Christos Pantocrator on the glittering dome. Darker than the second before creation, indifferent to prayer and incense, they stared through the terrified worshippers until they started to turn to me. No, I cried, holding my hands over my face. Don't look at me. For if those eyes met mine, they would see my fins, my sins, and pinion me in hell. What on earth is the matter, Lillian said. For the first time in 30 years, I was glad to hear her voice. You have to stop drinking so much wine, she scolded, and went into the bathroom. The mosaic disappeared beneath the conqueror's whitewash. Lillian flushed the toilet twice, then rattled the handle to stop it from running. When she finally came to bed, she pulled on the sheet and told me to stop talking to myself. The next ten days, before Lillian took me to the doctor, were the happiest in my life. After breakfast, the butterfly followed me when I took my coffee and the newspaper to the screen porch. Sometimes I could see the events of the day compressed between its wings. Sometimes we would fly together to Florence or Jerusalem or the islands of the blessed. By lunchtime, I was ready for a glass of milk and my sandwich and nap. Then in the afternoons, we would sit together smelling the rain through the screens and watch wooden ships lumber with the trade winds across blue-black seas. After dinner, we retired to my study to see the lives of the saints emblazoned in a moving book of hours or witness terrifying martyrdoms during the reign of Diocletian. He hasn't spoken for a week, Lillian said to Dr. Morris. Mother and I are beside ourselves. The same thing happened to her father, Mother added. Do you think it's genetic? Dr. Morris was not interested in genetics. He was moving a finger in front of my eyes to see if I could follow it. I stared at his forehead. 
he wasn't wearing the round reflector doctors are supposed to wear to see your tonsils when you say ah. He didn't even have one of those wooden tongue depressors, twice as thick as a popsicle stick, that they stick down your throat until you gag. Ah, I said to see if he was a real doctor. That was a mistake. The doctor leaned back and smiled professionally. Thank you, Charles, he said. You shouldn't be encouraging him, should you, Dr. Lillian asked. Many times they remember things that happened when they were children and forget what happened in the waiting room, he said. I don't know how that nurse will ever forgive us, Mother said. There was nothing to forgive. If she didn't want men stuffing banknotes in her garter, she should not be in the chorus line at the Moulin Rouge. The worst times are when he is afraid, Lillian continued. I knew where this was going. An institution, furtive consultations with bank officers. Then Lillian and Mother would be off for a month on the QE2 to regain their composure. Like Lear, I had made many mistakes, but like Lear, I would not go quietly. Where are you going, Dr. Morris cried, but I was too quick for him. Unlike Lear, however, I had no fool to guide me. I got through the waiting room and into the corridor, but where should I go next? They caught me in the elevator, staring at the buttons, unable to decide whether to go up or down to escape. I'm sure he'll be fine at home until a bed opens up in the Alzheimer's unit, Dr. Morris said when we parted. They're much more comfortable among familiar things. And no more alcohol, Mother added. The nurse from the Moulin Rouge held my hand until I was safely belted in the car. Tonight after the second show, I whispered. Oh no, they probably won't have anything for several days, she replied. After so many years with Lillian and her mother, I was used to people talking about me as if I didn't exist. The next two days, however, they didn't talk at all. I was blissfully happy. The butterfly and I sat together in the den. They wouldn't let me out on the porch anymore. Sometimes I just held it on my finger and watched its feelers tremble. Other times it perched on the bookshelves and showed me mysteries that only angels can contemplate. If he doesn't eat something, he's going to make himself sick, Mother said. Would you like a nice turkey sandwich, Lillian tempted me? I did not reply. It's so hard to find the right wine for turkey and mayonnaise. And if we did, it would only lead to another argument. So much better to cup the butterfly in my fingers and find sustenance in its thoughts. After all, butterflies live on sugar water and sunshine. What's he holding, Mother asked. I closed my fists so they couldn't see it. Charles, what is that? Lillian demanded. I'll bet it's his medicine, Mother said. He hasn't been taking his medicine. If only I hadn't been taking my medicine, my reflexes might have been better. Here, Lillian said, grabbing my hand, let me see. Like an angry child searching for chewing gum, she started the pry open my fingers. Give it to me. Wings beating like the heart of a little animal, the butterfly quivered inside my hand. I tried to keep it closed, but Lillian pulled harder and harder until my fingers ached like the time I shimmied up the swing set and fell to the ground from exhaustion. No was the last word I ever spoke. Its silver wings were streaked against my palm 
like mercury from a broken thermometer. In one last second, I saw the mosaic shattered by the hammers of the infidels and women fleeing the ruined city. And then my world went blank. I don't know how long I will stay here. At first, they said it was just until my medication was adjusted, or until Lillian returned, or until the doctor did some more tests. Don, my caretaker, helps me dress and go to the bathroom and brings food on a cafeteria tray. Sometimes we go to crafts or to the community room for ice cream and balloons. My favorite time is computer time, when they let me write whatever I want. Would you like to share that with Dr. Don always asks. I shake my head and smile, so Don will not be hurt. At the end of the session, I delete every word. Whom can I talk to after witnessing creation? To whom can I confess now that I have seen through the eyes of God? So I made a vow of silence to the butterfly, but not out of devotion. Like some illicit intoxicant, it brought unimaginable joy and then died and left me alone. If only Alzheimer's were a disease of the memory, I could forget. Can anyone who visited Ravenna when Justinian's mosaics were new or saw Vienna besieged by Solomon the Magnificent ever forget? We do not mutter to ourselves and shamble through the halls because we don't remember, but because we have remembered too much. So I don't mind them keeping me here, or you can tell the staff by their white tennis shoes and the inmates by their expressions of unimaginable loss. And that's our first satire. Come back in a couple of weeks and I'll have another. Oh, I, I forgot to give the author's name. It's Fred McGovern. No, I think that's McGraven, McGarvin, McGavern. Yes, that's it, McGavern. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Butterfly Collector is from a short story collection of the same name. I think the author probably has a website somewhere. Yes, here it is, www.fredmcgavran.com mcgavran.com. If it's like all the others, it probably has a link to the book. In our next episode, I will read Recycled Glass, a satire of kitchen remodeling, orthopedic surgery, a long-term marriage, and Russian gangsters. Anyone who has experienced these will recognize the characters and situations and find its insights comforting. Until then, thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Hello. Welcome to the second episode of The Laughing Satirist. Today I'll read Recycled Glass, a satire of kitchen remodeling, orthopedic surgery, marriage, and Russian gangsters. Months into remodeling their kitchen, the recycled glass countertop has not yet arrived, and the narrator's wife, Joyce, demands action from contractor Butch Siegel. Both Joyce and her narrator husband, Walter, are surprised when the countertop is delivered with the contractor's arm embedded in it. 
Enraged, Joyce confronts Tudemir Vlasev, the manufacturer. He takes her criticism personally, leading her to consult orthopedic surgeon Felix Mexta, MD, for finger replacement surgery. After a difficult start to their relationship, the narrator and Tudi Vlasev become collaborators, feeding severed limbs to Dr. Mexta to build his practice. Recycled Glass If you have ever remodeled a kitchen, you know a time comes when you will do anything to have it over. Despite all your planning and preparation, cabinets or tile or painters don't show up, water geysers out of pipes, and truckers go on strikes three states away, delaying critical shipments for weeks. Two months past our scheduled completion date, Joyce and I were ready to quit. Like an open-heart operation that has lasted six months, the project was draining the life out of the patient without any sign of ever being finished. We had not had a hot meal at home since late fall. That is why Joyce reacted so strongly when Butch Siegel, our contractor, stopped by to say the recycled glass countertop would take another six weeks. That countertop was supposed to be here a month ago, she screamed at him. We're not paying you until it's installed. Siegel, who had Da Nang 1968 tattooed on his left forearm and mother over a heart on his bicep, looked at me. Hillary, our decorator, had recommended him because everybody uses him. But like most contractors, he practically disappeared as soon as the contract was signed. Whenever Joyce complained about the lack of progress, he would wink and say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Despite the implied familiarity, which probably worked well enough with Hillary, he never reciprocated if we let him slide past a deadline or accepted his excuses for not having ordered the necessary supplies. Instead of doing anything extra for us, Butch kept demanding more for himself, like an alcoholic enabled by sympathetic family. The manufacturer doesn't work well under pressure, he said after his usual evasions failed. As someone who has often been the subject of Joyce's wrath, I almost felt sorry for him. Now I wish I had done something more than just shrug. But I'll see what I can do, he said, retreating to his truck. Joyce had seen recycled glass countertops in a green living catalog and was instantly hooked. Brilliant on the surface, they had a depth that implied they went on forever, like the universe itself. Recycled glass countertops were as much the impetus for our remodeling project as my recent inheritance from mother. Joyce had argued for weeks with Hillary over that countertop. Like most decorators, Hillary's taste was the exact opposite of her clients. Hillary preferred Corian or granite. Joyce demanded recycled glass. At Hillary's $250 an hour consulting fee, it was very expensive to argue with her. Joyce finally put her foot down as she huffed to her breathless friends and simply insisted on recycled glass. So the argument switched to selecting just the right color. More weeks followed, designing the entire kitchen around it. 
When it was finally installed, the island countertop would attract the envy and admiration of Joyce's friends, as much as the mosaics in Hagia Sophia had attracted generations of pilgrims. Telling her it would take another six weeks was like telling a city that had built a cathedral to enshrine the bones of its patron saint to wait another generation until they could be recovered from the Saracens. A day after Joyce screamed at Butch Siegel, someone banged at the door. I'll get it, Joyce called. I heard her talking to men with accents so heavy I could not understand them. I went to the door. It's here, she said breathlessly. A minute later, two big men in knee-length black leather coats crowded past us, carrying a huge crate on its side. They smelled so bad I had to step out onto the porch for air. I'm so excited I can't stand it, Joyce said, following them to the kitchen. They set the crate on its side and started ripping it apart with their bare hands. With each rip, strips of the dull underside of the countertop appeared. It was nearly four feet long on each side and four inches thick, with an inch-wide rim on the underside to hold it in place. Grunting, they lifted the countertop out of the frame and set it onto the island. It fit perfectly. One of the men wiped the splinters off the surface with his coat sleeve and stepped back. Oh, Joyce exclaimed. I had to pick my way through the pieces of the crate to see it. My God, I whispered. Like the diadem of an eastern emperor, it dazzled and terrified. Deep blue like the cosmos at creation, the surface was flecked with crystals so brilliant they would entice angels from their prayers. When Joyce turned on the triangle of halogen lights hanging above it, the crystals seemed to swirl in the coils and unwind again like intersecting galaxies. I hardly dared touch it. That countertop was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. You pay now, one of the men said. Of course, I said. He handed me an invoice that said Vlasev Glass, an address near the railroad marshalling yards, a phone number, and writing that looked like Cyrillic script. All I could make out was $8,500, 3000 more than we had agreed to pay. The bill isn't right, I said. You pay, he repeated. Something in his tone made my stomach freeze. Pay him, Joyce said. It's perfect. I'll get my checkbook, I said. No, cash. I don't keep $8,500 around the house. Just do it, Walter, Joyce said. So I got my checkbook and rode between the two men to my bank, where I withdrew $8,500 in cash. Is something the matter, the teller asked as I handed the money to my companions. They're working with our contractor, I explained. The ride home was difficult because both of them smoked cigars and they kept the windows closed. If they hadn't dropped me off at the head of the street, I don't think I would have survived. Joyce had all the kitchen windows open to air out when I arrived. Hillary's on the way over, she said. When Hillary arrived, glorious in a pink moo-moo and oversized white jewelry, she was stunned in the temporary silence by the glistening glass. Decorators, however, don't like to be shown up. 
Recovering herself, she placed one hand on the countertop and walked slowly around it, searching for flaws. Well, look at this, she said in that tone of voice the decorators use when the job is going to cost another $10,000. She'd found a rough spot on the side toward the stove and was leaning over to look at it. With a shout of triumph, she straightened up and stepped back. Joyce peered at the glass. Oh, she exclaimed. I had never seen her so surprised. Walter, look, she said. Whenever something happens, I have to fix it. So I walked around the countertop and bent over. There was a rough spot, as if the workman had forgotten to polish it. This should be easy to fix, I said, relieved. Walter, look, she repeated in a tone I knew all too well. I bent over and squinted at the glass. It was like an opening into the great wall of galaxies that stretched eons of light years across a far corner of the universe. In the center was a gray smear, rising like the glass gas clouds of the Horsehead Nebula to darken the stars of Orion. No, it wasn't the Horsehead Nebula. It was a human arm with Da Nang 1968 tattooed on the forearm and mother over a heart on the bicep. That's what happens when you use the wrong people, Hillary said triumphantly. Joyce was abashed. As soon as Hillary was outside, she slammed the door and turned on me. This is unacceptable, Walter, she said, as if everything were always my fault. Call the contractor. So I called Siegel and left a message on his cell. Nothing happened. I called his cell again the next day. I called his office. Nobody knew where he was. When you get to a certain stage of a project, the contractor always thinks another client is more important. Then call the glass company, Joyce said. No one answered the phone. They didn't have a recorder for a voicemail. Just give me the bill, Joyce snapped. I'm going there myself. But dear, I began. If only there were something I could trust you with, Walter. So I don't blame myself for anything that happened. She returned late in the afternoon with a terrible headache and surgical tape wrapped around her left hand from the middle to the little finger. She asked me for some of the painkillers for my back and went to bed. Did you hurt your hand, I asked. I don't want to talk about it, she said in the same voice as when she broke an acrylic nail or discover a run in her hose after she had taken them off. When Joyce is in a mood like that, it's best not to push her. So for dinner, I opened a can of lentil soup and made myself a martini, much as I do on other nights when she is indisposed. I had just sat down at the table and was looking for something in the newspaper I hadn't read yet when there was a terrific banging on the door. I turned on the light and looked out the side window. The two men in leather coats were back, carrying something wrapped in a tarpaulin. Apparently things had gone better for Joyce that afternoon than she had thought. I opened the door. Again they shoved by me and carried another countertop into the kitchen. Grunting, they removed the first countertop and set the new one onto the island. Without speaking, they picked up the first and walked out. As soon as I heard their truck start, 
I closed and locked the door and turned on the Halligan lights over the island. This time the blue was as deep as the blue-black sea, miles, miles under the waves. Yellow lights flickered toward the surface, like fish with chemical lamps swaying before their jaws, attracted by the spotlight on the submarine. I was nearly afraid to touch it. When I did, it was as smooth and cool as a solidified nightmare. Gently, I ran my fingers around the edge. On three sides, it was perfect. Then, just as I was about to turn the corner away from the stove, I felt something rough, like a tiny blemish on a beautiful woman's face that her makeup could not cover. Trembling, I bent over and peered into the island. Who, except God, has ever looked into a sea like that? Long trails of seaweed drifting in the depths, fish no marine biologist has ever imagined. Even a giant squid or crushed submarine lying twisted in the depths. No, it wasn't a submarine. Something on it was glowing, as if all the light and energy in the sea were concentrated on it. Yes, I recognized it. It was a diamond, mother's diamond that I had had reset for Joyce for our 35th anniversary, and the thing on which it rested was her ring finger. Of course, I couldn't waken Joyce with something as disturbing as this, so I spent a very bad night. The second martini did not help. Both of us were tossing and muttering to ourselves until I thought I would never get any sleep. So I waited a few minutes after she got back into bed after her 3 a.m. dose of Demerol, and took some myself. Ah, to slip into that silent sea again, where marvelous creatures bumped against the portholes of my submarine, and all my visions were of blinking yellow lights, like fireflies hovering over backyard bushes on a summer evening. I did not awaken until Joyce came into the bedroom at 10 a.m., complaining about how hard it was to get an appointment with our doctor, even if something might be serious. They told me to come in and wait until he has an opening, she said. I suspected that Dr. Mex's staff was exaggerating to create the impression of a thriving practice. When they still let me practice law, I had used him as an expert witness before a series of spectacular malpractice verdicts drove him from orthopedic surgery to geriatrics. We had something else in common. Hillary, our decorator. She had imposed her signature look on his new office in a strip mall by installing granite countertops at the nurse's station and on the sinks in the examining room. Today, competitive in today's competitive medical environment, it can be more important to have the right decorator than to have the right credentials. Did you lose your ring, dear, I asked, daring to broach a touchy subject? Most women don't like to be questioned about the whereabouts of their wedding ring. She looked at the bandage on her left hand. Maybe I just put it down somewhere. She had never been that fond of mother. Perhaps she would enjoy a morning catching up on People magazine while waiting for the doctor. That ring, however, was a family heirloom, and I wasn't going to let her just throw it away. After having some cottage cheese and toast for lunch, 
I decided to visit Flas of Glass. Trips like that always make me wish I had learned to use the GPS on my new car. When you reach a certain age, however, there is only much, so much technology you can absorb. It had taken me two weeks and several near misses in the parking lot outside the wine store to learn to turn on the windshield wipers. Somehow I found my way to the railroad marshalling yards, but I had forgotten how cut up the streets down there were. I did not even know on which side of the tracks Vlasev Glass was. So I spent an hour driving through neighborhoods with signs for Mexican sodas in the windows, narrowly surviving an encounter with a diesel engine that appeared suddenly at a crossing where I had stopped to become reoriented. Exasperated, I was pulling into a gravel parking lot to turn around when I saw the delivery men's truck. Beside it was behind it was a cinder block building, filthy with age, with no windows and a sign over the door that said Vlasev Glass. At one side of the building were several dumpsters with broken glass scattered around them. I knocked on the door. Nothing happened. Next time we remodel, I promise myself, we will be more careful about our subcontractors. The bottom of the door was scraped and dented as if someone in iron-tipped shoes had tried to kick it in. Then I remembered how the delivery man had pounded on our door. I stepped back and kicked the door several times. Again, nothing happened. Turning around, I saw a brown-skinned child with straight black hair watching from across the parking lot with his fingers in his ears, a gesture I had not seen since Vietnam. Damn it, I thought, kicking the door again. Enough is enough. Suddenly it swung open. One of the delivery men was standing there, looking as if he had been suddenly aroused from a deep sleep. The man just looked at me. Lights flashed in the shadows behind him, as if someone were welding signposts to hell. We have to talk about the ring, I said. He didn't answer. It was mother's, you know. Again, no answer. Look, I'll take the countertop, no questions asked, but I have to have that ring. You talk to Tootie, he said. Who? He reached out, grabbed me by the collar, dragged me inside, and slammed the door. Shoving me ahead of him, he frog-walked me down the hall, a hall lit by flames rippling from the grates of huge ovens. The whole place smelled of sweat, cigars, and burnt electricity. Ahead of us, men were shouting and screaming at each other in Spanish and some guttural language, like devils from different cultures condemned to stoke the fires of hell together. Just before we reached the furnace room, he twisted my shoulder, turning me through a door frame into an office. He kicked the door shut behind us. You sit down, he said, shoving a metal chair against the backs of my knees. Something big and gray loomed before me. Then the man said something in a foreign language that had a whining quality to it, and the gray shadow answered. Gradually, my eyes adjusted to the dark, and I saw a man so fat his stomach spilled out of his black leather coat onto a gray metal desk. Before and to his light, left was the other delivery man. 
The fat man was raising and lowering the blade on the cigar cutter with his huge left hand. Mr. Vlasev, he talked to you now, the man behind me said. Who, I said, squinting. Tudomir Vlasev, the fat man said, drawing out the words as if you were speaking to a slow child. What the hell you want? Tudomir was all I could think to say. Call me Tootie, the fat man said. Now what the hell you want? I'm not complaining about the quality of the work, Tootie, but I need that ring back. It costs a lot? He patted his coat for something. Let's just say it means a lot to me. Vlasev removed a huge cigar from some inner pocket and placed the tip in the cigar cutter. Looking up, he winked at me. Then he pounded the blade down with a fist so large the cutter disappeared. You like cigars, he asked. Joyce won't let me have cigars anymore. Slowly, without breaking his stare, Vlasev placed the cigar halfway into the cutter and pushed down the guillotine again. Here, he said, holding one half out to me. Something told me not to get up. The man behind me stepped forward, took the cigar, and stuck it in my mouth, while Tootie struck a match. After he'd lit his cigar, he handed the match to the man behind him. He stepped forward and lit my cigar. I could see the match was burning his finger. Now, Mr. Complainer, what we do with you, Vlasov said, raising and closing the cigar cutter blade again. I always enjoy a drink with my cigar, I replied. For a second, silence. Then Tootie laughed and said something in Russian. The other man chuckled, and the one beside him produced a bottle and glasses from somewhere and set them on his desk. Tootie say you got balls, he said, grinning at me, for now. I had forgotten how well a good cigar and vodka went together. Maybe it was the alcohol. Maybe it was Demer the Demerol still circulating in my blood. But I felt like I was 25 again, before I ever met Joyce, when tobacco and alcohol produced some of my best ideas. Perhaps I should write up a case note for Dr. Mexta to submit to the New England Journal of Medicine about how the right combination of stimulants and circumstances can reverse the aging process. It might help to establish him in his new specialty. Well, smart guy, Tootie said, slapping the cutter blade down again. What you got for me? You're making a terrible mistake with the way you dispose of body parts, I said, recoiling Joyce's recalling Joyce's appointment with our doctor. I have some contacts in the medical profession who would pay for a steady supply. Tootie looked at the man beside me, grinned, and said something incomprehensible. Both men laughed. No shit, he said. Give me Joyce's finger back, and we'll see what Dr. Mexta can do. Tootie pointed his cigar at me like the muzzle of a revolver. I give you the finger in the ring, Mr. Complainer. It worked, we partners. It not work, he slammed the cigar cutter down to finish the thought. That's how I became an entrepreneur at the age of 67. I had not realized what a good preservative recycled glass was until Dimitri and Vladi, as I discovered their names were, 
remove Joyce's ring finger from the countertop. Unfortunately, they had to return the countertop to the shop to be recrafted because they had chiseled from the top down to retrieve the finger. I knew Joyce would be terribly disappointed when she got home to find that the remodeling was still not complete. I wish I had remembered her cell phone number, because if I had called instead of driven to Dr. Mexta's office, he would not have been so defensive about the reattachment procedure. I just sewed the stump up, he exclaimed, when I presented him with the missing digit. I would have waited if I knew you had the finger. Joyce had been able to see him only after a two-hour wait. Testimony to the difficulty physicians have maintaining a profitable patient load when they have to switch specialties. I was confident that I had chosen my man well. I'll have to charge you another copay, he continued, holding up the finger to the light. Didn't you want the ring? The finger was just swollen enough that I couldn't remove it with soap and water. It was mother's, I said, suddenly overcome. Luckily for us, Joyce was so woozy from her first anesthetic of the day that she did not resist the second. I spent a pleasant enough hour in his waiting room, leafing through a copy of the latest issue of Connoisseur, silent testimony to the class of patients he hoped to attract. Several elderly couples had joined me by the time Dr. Mexta's nurse, Gloria, called me back to see the doctor's handiwork. Took me a while to get the circulation going again, but we did it, Dr. Mexta said, winking at his nurse. Joyce's ring finger was so swollen, I could not make out the nail. In her finger? No. She arrested during the procedure, Dr. Mexta said. Arrested? I knew Joyce had a problem with traffic tickets, but why would they track her to a doctor's office to serve a warrant? Her heart stopped, explained the physician. Gloria was able to get her back by massaging her chest. Gloria blushed. Late 30s, blonde, conveniently divorced with children old enough to be left alone in the evenings. She had that almost busting out of the uniform look that past middle-aged surgeons prefer for their operating staff. I noticed that Joyce's blouse was disheveled. She's going to be a little tender the next few days, Gloria said. I may have cracked some ribs. We wouldn't have to fool with stuff like this if I had my hospital privileges back, Dr. Mexta said. Just then, Joyce began to stir. Careful, dear, said Gloria. The doctor had performed the procedure on an examining table, and the nurse was concerned that she might roll off onto the floor. At a spot where the sheet had bunched up, I saw that the tabletop was granite. Two ibuprofens every four hours and wrap it in ice until the swelling's down, Dr. Mexta continued, preparing his action like any good surgeon before his patient fully regained consciousness and tell her to watch those ribs. Call me when she's better. I was still looking at her ring finger. The nail had disappeared. What happened to the nail, I asked, blocking the door. The doctor was surprised by the question. The nail? Sometimes they fall off. I don't know. Let me see. He lifted her hand and turned it over. Oh, my, he said. 
The nail was on the bottom surface, not the top. Just then Joyce awoke, frightening enough in normal circumstances, but particularly menacing now. She raised her hand slowly, looked at her purple finger, and tried to close it. Instead of joining the other digits in a fist, it curled upward. What have you done to me, she screamed, prompting Gloria to refill a large syringe. Anything you can do about this, doctor, I pleaded, knowing who would be blamed when we got home. Sorry, Walter, he said, looking helplessly at his nurse. With her heart, we can't go to the well too often. Did you want this, Gloria said, handing me mother's ring to distract me. It's surprising what a good nurse can do with a little lotion. Without Demerol, I don't know how today's physicians could manage their patients. When we finally left Dr. Mexta's office, he had a three-hour backlog in his waiting room. Joyce had her finger again, and I had mother's ring along with the resolve to be more careful to whom I entrusted it in the future. Vladdy and Dimitri met us in the kitchen. Apparently, home security systems are not as effective as the television marketers tell us.